TLR, it's good to see you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Man, it feels great to be here. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Jake, uh, and as of last Monday, uh, I get to lead the living room, which is super exciting. Um, Man, I have been praying for this moment for a long time uh, and really processing this idea of home, Uh, and I'm excited to to be home here at Woodstock TLR, but also to help continue to create a home away from home for every college-age adult in this area. And so um, over the past few weeks, I've really been thinking and praying and processing this idea of home and what it means to be home and what homes are like, and as I've done that, I kind of reflect back uh, to my own home. Uh, I grew up in a small town called Dublin, Georgia. Give me a shout if you've heard of it. Wait, for real? Oh my gosh. I feel like you only know that if you like stop to pee there on your way to Savannah, and that's the only time you've ever heard of Dublin, which is amazing. Uh, Fun fact, it's actually the fastest growing city in America because it's Dublin every day. Yes, you can expect more dad jokes from me. Um, I'm not a dad though. Uh, One day, we'll see. But man, I'm excited uh, because when I think about home, this is very different than the home that I grew up in. Uh, If you've been through Dublin, you probably never like went to Dublin, but you've gone through Dublin before. There's probably about as many people in Dublin as there are at KSU. And so it's a very small town, very everybody knows everybody kind of situation. There's no church that looks like this. There's no church that talks about things that we get to talk about. And so I grew up actually in a Methodist church. Uh, And in the Methodist church, it's very traditional. Um, It's very like, when you think about church, you think about like pews and hymnals and stained glass windows. And and that's kind of the way that I grew up. That was my upbringing in faith. And along with that, to be very honest with you, uh, came a lot of legalism. That for me, when I think about church, when I thought about my faith, I thought about the list of rules of things that you do if you're a Christian, things that you don't do if you're a Christian. And my faith, my belief in Jesus became very legalistic. It became very like, I'm better than this person because I do this or I don't do that. And so along the way, I picked up a lot of those things. And to be honest with you, that's what my relationship with God was like. That if I want to be liked by God, if I want to be loved by God, there are certain rules that I have to follow and things that I have to do. And so I had a really rude awakening for me when I got to the University of Georgia, go dog, sick, and wolf. And um, it was the first time that I'd really been surrounded by people who didn't think, talk, or act like me. Like I remember uh, the first few weeks on our hall, uh, there were maybe like two other people who even like, pretended to believe in Jesus that lived on my hall. And I don't know how many of you guys were in a dorm your freshman year, but if you were, do you remember like the first really awkward week where your RA gets you all together and it's like, everybody share your name and your major and where you're from, like a fun fact about yourself. Um, So we did one of those moments, but it was like name, major, where you're from and what food that you love. And so um, I started learning people on my hall based off of the foods. And so there was Buffalo Chicken Wrap Adam, Denny Hot Wings, Cracker Barrel Jake, obviously. And then later, as I continued to get to know people, I started learning them based off the substances that they tried to sell me. Um, So I decided I need better friends. Uh, And so because of that, I actually ended up getting really involved in a couple campus ministries, one that was a lot like this. I got really involved in Athens Church, if you've heard of it. It's very similar to Woodstock City. Um, I got involved in the Christian fraternity, uh, which is just as weird as it probably sounds to you, um, but it was awesome. Uh, I look back on that season of my life and I'm like, man, like, I had never grown more spiritually than I did in the four years that I was in college. In fact, I tell people often, in fact, I'm pretty sure I've said it here before, that I grew more in my faith in the first semester that I was in college than I did the first 18 years of my life. I was surrounded by amazing community, 
I was serving in, in some churches that really invested into me and into my life and poured into me and met amazing people. That's honestly a lot of the reason why I have the job that I have now. And if you would have asked me like three years ago about my college experience, I'd have been like, I wouldn't have changed a thing. But then about a year ago, um, I was having kind of a heart to heart with the Lord. And um, there's a thought that I started processing that to be honest with you, I'm still kind of chewing on and it's this. It's that I knew a lot about God's heart for me, but I completely missed his heart for those around me. Like when I look back at my college experience and I think about, man, all the things that I got to do, the, the, the community that I had, the people that surrounded me, the friends that I made, I learned so much about God's plan for my life. I learned so much about God's goodness for me and his grace for me when I messed it up. I learned so much about the way that God wants to have this like personal everyday relationship with me. It's not just like a Sunday or a Wednesday kind of faith. Like I learned all of those things in college really for the first time. And yet in order to get to those places where I learned those things, I was walking past the hallway full of people who needed to know that there was a God who loves them and is for them. And so, yes, I walked away. I'm so thankful for my community. I'm so thankful for my friends. And I am thankful for my college experience. But if I could go back and do it again, I would have looked up. Because I can tell you honestly on Sundays and on Wednesdays and we had a thing on Monday nights too, like a little Bible study that we did, like I would walk straight past these people. Never once did I think, oh, I should invite them to come with me. Like, oh my gosh, like these people need to know Jesus too. I kind of had this mentality of like, man, like they're too far gone. Or like, man, if I even like have a conversation with them, they're gonna like influence me poorly, which is like not true. And I kind of wrote these people off and said that, man, if, if I don't want anything to do with them because I love God so much, then God must also not want anything to do with them. And this was the lie that, that I bought into. And so that's why over the next three weeks, uh, this series, Heart to Heart, we're gonna have a heart to heart. And I don't know like what that feels like for you when you hear the term heart to heart. It might feel a little bit like a we need to talk kind of text that you just got, but like we're gonna have a heart to heart. But this isn't a heart to heart from me to you. It's not even a heart to heart from you and, and your friends. That, that's not the kind of heart to heart we're having. We're heart, having a heart to heart between your heavenly father and you or God and you, God and me, God and all of us. Because when I look around church culture over the past few years, we've gotten it wrong about what God thinks about people who are far away from him. But the reality is that it's not just the church in 2024 that's gotten it wrong. People have been getting this wrong for centuries. And so that's why over the next three weeks, we're actually gonna be looking at the book of Luke chapter 15. We're gonna be looking at three parables that Jesus told to illustrate this point to illustrate what the heart of God is. And like every heart to heart, you can expect three things from us over the next three weeks. You can expect us to communicate the intention of Jesus. That over the next three weeks, we're gonna talk about the, the intention that Jesus had when he came to earth. The intention that Jesus had for, for leaving his throne in heaven to come to earth, to walk among us, to later die for us, to rise from the dead so that we can have a relationship. We're gonna actually learn about what his true intention was. Second thing is we're gonna clarify any misunderstanding, any misunderstanding of what the gospel actually is and who it is for. And third, we're gonna challenge wrong thinking because the reality is that we all, whether you recognize it or not, we have an incorrect view of God. 
that because we are so limited in the way that we can think as, as humans that sometimes we try to impose our character and the way we think about people onto God. But over the next three weeks, I want to help us impose his character onto our hearts so that our hearts become more like his heart. And so over the next three weeks, we're gonna look at three parables. And uh, just a disclaimer, if you grew up in church, you have definitely heard these three parables before. In fact, if I'm honest, if I was sitting in your seat, I'd be so tempted to like check out. I know it, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Like I've heard these things before. But at least in my experience, as I've heard these parables, what I've known is that I've always taken it as like, this is God's heart towards me. And this is what God wants for my life. And yet I forget to consider that this is also what God wants for the people that are around me. And so over the next three weeks, I wanna challenge you, especially if you've heard these things before and you feel like you've, you've you know, read everything and heard everything there is to know about Luke chapter 15. I, I want you to consider looking at it through this lens of what if this isn't about me? What if this is about my roommate, or my friend, my mom, somewhere in my sorority or my fraternity? So we're gonna start uh, tonight. We're gonna look at the first two parables tonight, Luke chapter 15. And I don't know uh, what kind of Bible you read, but uh, in my Bible, um, it's broken up into like chapters and verses, which is normal. But there's also like headings. Some Bibles do, some Bibles don't. My Bible has the heading at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep, which is true. We're about to talk about the lost sheep. But there's actually some contextual verses before we get to the lost sheep that I don't want you to miss because it's actually the entire reason Jesus is telling these stories in the first place. And so we're gonna take a few seconds and we're gonna really dive into these first two verses, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse one. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, talking about Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So from the beginning of this section of scripture, Luke, who's the author of Luke, is painting this picture for us that we see over and over and over throughout the gospels that those who were irreligious, people who were far from God, people who either wanted nothing to do with God or have been written off as too far from God, those who were irreligious, they loved Jesus. It says they were drawn to him. And so in this specific passage, it identifies two types of people. It says tax collectors and sinners. And if you've never heard the term tax collector before, it's essentially like the IRS. But basically these were Jewish people who were collecting taxes from other Jewish people on behalf of the Roman Empire who was in power at the time. But what would happen is, let's say you owed $5, I would say you actually owed $10 and then I would pocket the other five. They were traitors. They were seen as sleazy and, and, and outcasted. No one wanted to be around them. No one wanted to associate with them. And the second group of people that we see in this passage are the sinners. And now you're probably thinking, but like, aren't we like all sinners? Theologically, you are correct, A plus. However, this term sinners is actually referring to, a, uh, referring to a specific group of people. And these are people that either had diseases that people kind of thought, well, you must just sin all the time and so God's given you this disease and so you're seen as unclean. Or there are people who their occupation or, or their lifestyle is just perpetually sinful. And so this isn't just like your average every day, I committed a sin, let me go make a sacrifice for it. Like, you know, the rest of the people in the Bible were. These were people whose lives reflected a life full of sin that were also outcasted. You didn't associate with them. And yet these were the type of people that were drawn to Jesus. 
So those who were irreligious, they loved Jesus, and yet those who were religious, these religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, they hated Jesus. These were the people who, they grew up and they knew the law, every letter of the law. They knew everything that the law had to say. In fact, they thought that they were following the law better than anyone else. Like they thought that, that man, God must love me more because I follow the law better than they do, clearly. These people don't, can't even keep up with all of the laws, much less follow all of them. But I know all of them, I can recite all of them, and I follow all of them. God must love me more. And so the fact that not only were those people drawn to Jesus, but that Jesus welcomed them, it made them so angry. And they hated Jesus because they hated the tax collectors and they hated the sinners. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves that sometimes we look at people through that lens. We look at people and like, well, my sins aren't that bad. And like, at least I haven't done that. Or like, I haven't gone that far before. Or at least I'm like repentful and like sorry that I did it. Like those people, like they have no idea that what they even did was wrong. And we look at people like that. And then we get our idea of Jesus based off the fact if, he, if we think that he loves them or not. And we decide what the character of God is and what the character of Jesus is based off the way that we view other people. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And it made them so angry because Jesus loved them and he welcomed them and he ate with them. And he was the most anti-religious, religious figure that the first century had ever seen. And they didn't understand it. And because they couldn't understand it, it made them angry. Now, before you judge them, before you decide, well, you know, at least I'm not them, which is ironic because that's what they were doing. Before you get that in your mind of like, well, at least I'm not like the Pharisees or no, 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 I don't see people that way. I don't think about it that way. I wanna let you know that even if that's not your current heart posture, we are all susceptible. We are all susceptible to falling into the trap of, of playing this religious game of I'm better than you and, and because I do things and I follow the law better and, and eventually that turns into because I follow the law better, God must love me more. And it creates this system of confusion of, of who Jesus actually is and who God actually is and how we're supposed to follow him in response. And the reason that this is so dangerous is because if you are a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, if you label yourself that way, the term Christian, it literally means little Christ. And so when people think of Christians, we're supposed to be reflecting and following in the way of Jesus. Like if you're a Christian, your life reflects what God is like. And that's not fair because we're not perfect, but it's true. So we gotta get it right. Because there are people who are watching you. There are people who are looking at your life and, and the way that you treat them, the way that you look at them, the way that you talk about them. And they're forming their view of God based off of the way that we love or don't love them. So this is a really big deal. And it was a big deal to Jesus, which is why he told them three stories. And the first one is the parable of the lost sheep. And this is the, the, the parable. The, a parable is just a story that Jesus is telling to illustrate a point. And this is uh, the first parable, starting in verse three. It says, so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, 
if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. So shepherding was a very common practice in the first century. And so everyone understood what he was talking about. Everyone was familiar with shepherds. Everyone was familiar with sheep. Everyone understood the analogy. And so they're listening to him and they're like, well, like, yeah, like I'm gonna go look for the sheep. Of course, we're gonna go look for it. Like, like it's not like, oh, we got 99, close enough. Like, you know, like 99%, A plus, like that's pretty good. It's like, no, 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 like that sheep has value to me. That sheep means something to me. That sheep is important to me. So yeah, we're gonna go get it. Of course, we're gonna go do that. Of course, I'm gonna go look for it. Of course, I'm gonna go searching until I find it. I'm not gonna give up until I do. Like, of course, we would do that. And I can imagine as, as Jesus sees their gears turning of like, yeah, of course, we would do that. He's like, but why won't you do that with people? But why are you so afraid to do that when people run off and get lost? And what we don't know from this passage is like how far the sheep ran away. We don't know like, you know, what it did to get lost. We don't know like, you know, if he like hopped over the little gate or if he just like snuck out. You know, like we don't, we don't know why it's lost. We don't know how far it's gone. All we know is that it is lost. All that matters to the shepherd is that it's lost. And so no matter how far it is, no matter how it got out or ran away, I'm gonna go find it. And when he finds it, it says, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. I love this picture because I think about like, if you ever had like a dog run away before, like run down the street, like the first thing that I wanna do is like get so angry and like yell at the dog, maybe like give it a little spanking, you know, of like don't do that ever again, you know, like that's like my first instinct is like, no, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have run away. Like, why did you do that? You know better than that. And we think like, oh, we have to discipline so that they learn and, and that's the way that we think about this. But what I love in this, in this story is that the shepherd does none of that. He does not shame the sheep. He does not scold the sheep. He doesn't even make it walk home. He puts it around his shoulders, rejoicing. And then he calls his friends and he's like, rejoice with me. He was not rejoicing because there were 99 still at home. That wasn't the source of his joy. The source of his joy was that he found the one that was lost. And for the Pharisees, they had it so wrapped in their heads that God should be rejoicing over me because I'm not lost. So they thought. They thought God should be rejoicing over me because I'm following him. God should be rejoicing over me because, because I've been obeying him. I've been doing all of the right things. And yet Jesus says, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And the irony here is that there's no such thing as a righteous person who needs no repentance because we cannot create our own righteousness. We all need repentance. There's not righteous people who don't need repentance. There's just people who think that they don't need repentance because they have given themselves righteousness. 
And I don't know about you, but when I grew up hearing these stories, um, like Jesus could have just told this and like dropped the mic and walked away. And I think when I grew up, I always heard these stories in isolation. And you know, we'd like do this and this thing like Reckless Love After or something, which is like amazing song. But what I think is really important is that this isn't the end of Jesus's narrative. In fact, after he says that, and I'm sure the Pharisees and everyone listening was probably still like thinking their gears are turning of like what this actually means for them. He actually tells them another story. Except this story isn't about another sheep. This story is about a coin. Verse eight, he says, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. So in the first story, we, we talk about a sheep and this, this next coin, we, or this next story, we're talking about a coin. And what I love so clearly in this, in this specific parable is how it communicates value. And what I love is that the woman in the story, she did not go looking for the coin to give it value. She went looking for the coin because it already had value. And what I love about this parable in particular is it communicates this truth that just because something is lost doesn't mean that it lost its value. The Pharisees thought that, that the people who were far from God, the people who were sinning and the tax collectors, that they were so far from God that they had lost their value to him because they had lost value to the Pharisees. And so surely God must have lost his idea of value for them too. But just because something is lost doesn't mean it lost its value. I mean, you know this, like if you lose your wallet, like you're not like, oh man, there goes my identity, see you never, and just like move on. Like it's like, no, you like, you got credit cards and debit cards in there and you're like, man, I, I gotta find that thing. Like I got Cracker Barrel gift cards in my wallet. Like you better believe I'm gonna go find it if it gets lost. Like it's valuable. Or maybe like you leave your phone charger at, at a friend's house and you like immediately text them like, yo, like do you see my, do you see my phone charger? Because like, <laughs> It's on 18% and like, I still got time to talk to Shadi before we go to bed. Like, uh, like I need my phone charged. Like we know that, that just because things are lost, it doesn't mean they don't have value. And I think something else that kind of gets lost in this story is that we think, when we think about coins, we think about like, I don't know if y'all remember, there used to be like these things called coins and they were like nickels and dimes and like whatever. We don't, we don't use those, we just like tap and pay or I don't know, I kind of sometimes tap and pray that I have money in my account, but we used to have these things called coins, like nickels and dimes, and we think that that is what this woman was searching for, but it's not. It was actually called a drachma, and a drachma was worth about a day's wages. And so in the same way that you would go looking for your debit card or your credit card or your phone charger, this woman is searching everywhere because it has value to her. Jesus is trying to communicate is that the heart of God, he doesn't see less value in people who are lost. Just because they're lost does not mean that they have lost any value to him. He doesn't look for them to give them value. He looks for them because they already have value to him. And then when he finds them, there's, there's no scolding. There's no shame. In fact, in this story, what I, what I love is that once again, something was lost. Once again, someone went looking for it. And then once again, there's a celebration. It says, and when she has found it, 
Verse nine, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so there is joy before the angels over one sinner who repents. God's gonna search until he finds it, until he finds you, until he finds the person that is lost. And when he has found them, there is celebration in heaven. There is rejoicing in heaven. And what Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to understand is that there should be rejoicing on earth. Like when someone comes to, to faith and to believe in Jesus, to put their faith in Jesus, and when they were lost and dead in their sin, and now they are found, when they come to faith to believe in Jesus, there should be rejoicing. That's why if you've ever been a part of, of a baptism night at our church, there is rejoicing because someone who is lost is now found. But the questions that the, the Pharisees were so tempted to ask is like, but wait, wait, why were they lost in the first place? Or like, how far gone, or you know, how far did they go? Like, what did they do? How bad was their sin? And, and, and Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't get it. That is not what matters. What matters is not how far someone has gone. What matters isn't even really what they did. The fact of the matter is the most important thing in this moment is that they are lost and need to be found. That's the point. And that's why we rejoice when they're found, but the Pharisees could not comprehend that. There was no rejoicing for them. It was just grumbling. Because God didn't fit in their box anymore. God didn't fit in this neat little box they put him in where they thought they understood that God was a God of rules and a God of laws and a God of all of these things in which, yes, there are rules, yes, there are laws and all those things, but that is not the way that he puts value on us. That is not the way that he determines who is worth seeking after, who is worth looking for. What matters to him is that there is someone who is lost and they need to get home. And when they come home, his heart explodes with joy. But the Pharisees, they missed it because they were so focused on what they thought they should have gotten from God that they missed the opportunity that was in front of them to point people to a God who loved them. I'll say it this way. Those the religious looked down upon, Jesus looked for. That for years, centuries, really, these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, you might hear sometimes the, the term Sadducees. All of these religious leaders had spent years looking down on people and reminding people why they were better than them. Reminding people of, of how distant God must be from you because of what you've done and how far you've gone and who you are and where you go and who you do it with. Like, like that is in their mind what, what separates you from God. And I am closer to God because I do not do any of those things. And they had created these categories. They had created this system of exclusion to say you are not worthy of being in the family of God because of what you've done. You are not worthy of being in the family of God because, because of how far you have gone. We are good and you are bad. And God loves good people and he hates bad people. That was their, that was their religion. That was their category. And if we aren't careful, it is so easy to slip into that mindset that there's good and then there's bad. And God loves the good and he hates the bad. 
and we create these categories in our minds of like, like Christian and then like super Christian and then like not as super Christian. And if your version of Christianity, if, the, if, if in your mind the religion that you have subscribed to creates categories of how valuable someone is dependent on their behavior, you gotta lose it because that is not Christianity. That is not following Jesus. Jesus just says, come and follow me. It doesn't really matter how far away you were. If you would just come and follow me, if you would just come and be my disciple, if you would just come and walk alongside of me, if you will, will turn from the way that you are living now and come and follow me, that's it. And the beautiful thing is that when you do that, you actually go with him on this journey of finding and seeking the people who are lost. You actually get to partner with Jesus and getting to spread this good news. In fact, that's the entire reason that he came. And, and, and you probably know this. I mean, I'm sure you've heard this verse before, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the gospel. God so loved the world. Not just for God so loved the people who got it together. Not just for God so loved the people who know all the rules and follow them. Not just for God so loved the Pharisees. For God so loved the religious leaders, for God so loved the people who grew up in church, for God so loved the people, you know, who sing the songs, lift their hands. Like that's not, it's for God so loved the world, the whole thing. That he sent Jesus. And that is the good news. But what's really exciting is, is the verse after that that sometimes we forget about. But it's also really good news. This is John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus did not come to scold us or to shame us because we ran away. He came to save us. He came to find us just as we are. And yet he loves us too much to let us stay that way. For God so loved the world, he sent Jesus. For God so loved the whole thing, the whole world in his hands, that he sent Jesus. But the question that I wrestle with when I hear a statement like that is, God, what if your means of searching for the, those people in the world, the lost people in the world, what if your means of searching for them is me? What if his means for searching for them is you? What if... For God so loved KSU that he sent you, hootie hoo, <laughs> right? <laughs> like what if for God so loved Reinhardt, he sent you? What if for God so loved Chat Tech that he sent you? What if for God so loved your roommate that he sent you? For God so loved your family, your mom, your dad, your brother that he sent you to be born into that family? What if for God so loved the person across the hall that you don't even know their name, that he sent you? What if for God so loved that person that you sit next to in class, 
that you don't talk to because you got your AirPods in? Like, like what if God so loved them that he sent you? Man, what would it look like if we recognize first and foremost that we were all lost and we have been found and now it is our turn to go on this mission with Jesus, with his Holy Spirit that we sang about earlier to help bring people home. Yes, to this home away from home, that is TLR. In fact, earlier our team was praying around and we were praying over every seat in this room and we were praying, God, even the empty seats. God, would you give us names of people who need to sit in those empty seats? What if for God so loved that empty seat next to you that it needs to be filled next week? Like, what would that look like? But man, it's so much bigger than TLR. This isn't just about filling this room. This isn't just about making TLR this massive. This is about the family of God. This is about putting down our pride and, and, and maybe for the first time considering that Christianity isn't just about me, but it's about all the people around me. Like maybe for the first time it's, it's considering like, God, what if I'm put in this place, in this room, in this dorm or in this apartment or in this house or in this fraternity or in this sorority for someone else to know you, to know the freedom and the life that we have to know the true heart of God. That is not one of condemnation, it is not one of shame, it is not one of scolding. It's a heart of seeking. It's a heart of loving. It's a heart of celebration when the lost are found. I also know that in a room like this, I can imagine that there are some of you who maybe need to hear this for the first time for yourself. And maybe for you, before you can join in on this mission of going to like, you know, the little lost and found mission that we're on, like maybe for you, you need to realize that that, that might be where you're at. And maybe you need to hear that there is no gone that is too far gone for God. There is no loss that is too lost for God. And that goes for you too. That the same heart that God had towards the Pharisees and towards or towards the tax collectors and towards the sinners, that he has that heart towards you. It's not about what you've done or how far you've gone or, or, or why you got yourself into the situation in the first place. It's just the fact that you're his kid and you're valuable to him. And so he's gonna come looking. Not because he doesn't see you, because he's waiting for you to see him that he's been here all along, that he loves us just as he finds us in all the mess and all the, the, the dirt and the, the shame and the guilt and the messes that we have made. He loves us just as he finds us and he celebrates when he finds us. And yet he loves us too much to let us stay that way. And that's his heart for you, it's his heart for the whole world. And I wonder what it would look like if you filled in that blank and asked God, God, what would it look like 
for me to have the bravery and the courage, not just to put a name in the blank, but to actually do something about it. Because that's what you've put me here to do. And so we are gonna sing one more song tonight, but here's what I would encourage you to do. Maybe as we sing this next song, maybe this is a moment for you to, to genuinely ask God for the bravery and the courage to say whoever it is, whatever it is, if it's a whole sports team or a whole sorority or a whole fraternity, God, whatever it is, would you give me the courage and the bravery and the willingness to love them and to see them the way that you see them? Maybe for some of you, it's like, God, I need to see myself the way that you see me. And maybe for some of you, it's, it's, it's to stand and worship in awe of this holy God who was willing to do whatever it took to go whatever distance to come running for you and for me. So let me pray for us and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we are so in awe of you. God, I'm so in awe of your character and your grace and your love. God, I'm so in awe of, of your willingness to go whatever distance to never stop, to keep looking, to keep seeking, to keep searching, to keep tugging on our hearts. And God, we admit that sometimes we have missed the point and we have made this all about us, but it was never about us. It's always been about you. And so God, tonight we, we celebrate the fact that, that your goodness and your kindness loves us as you find us. And God, we also celebrate the fact that, that we are all on a mission, that we get to go now with you to look for the people who you have put us in their lives. God, I pray that, that you would use this room, that you would use these students, God, that you would use this place to transform college campuses, to transform homes, to transform all the spaces that we go into, every workplace, every digital space. God, that you would transform what is happening in the world right now because of this room of people who are brave enough to say, God, here I am, send me. God, give us the courage to do that. Give us the eyes to see the people around us, the way that you see them, as people with value, as people worth chasing after. It's in your name we pray. Amen.